This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Rodney Fox was born in 1940 in South Australia. Growing up near water, he quickly developed a passion for swimming, spearfishing, and the ocean. And he went on to become the South Australian spearfishing champion at age 22. Exactly one year after he won the championship, he was competing to defend his title when he was attacked by a great white shark and was badly wounded. Rodney used the experience to help increase shark awareness around the world and has been involved in dozens of film projects. He developed the first shark cages for underwater viewing and founded the Fox Shark Research Foundation alongside his son, Andrew, in 2001. In this episode of Anchored, Rodney and I discuss his attack, his role in Jaws, shark conservation, and media glamorization of animal attacks. Have you ever done a podcast before? I have done a podcast in over the phone, actually, for an English company, and uh, that was people rang me from America and from Europe to say that they uh, had heard it, and of course, guess what they wanted to talk about? Shark attacks. <laughs> yes, not so much. Well, sharks anyway. Attacks are really a, a savage, interesting terrible thing but you know a shark attack upsets so many people and it's many many years ago in 1963 I was bitten by a great white and uh, it made headlines for days and days I did have a fairly miraculous escape 
and recovery because my wounds are regarded as one of the, the, the miracle survivors from a bad shark attack around the chest. But it, um, it's been a continuous big part of my brain work over the, the last years and people fear so much the word shark. You know, the word shark alone creates almost a, a hysteria in some places and it's the fear of the unknown and I've tried to find out, you know, just what it was and it's basically that people can't see the animal. When we were hunter-gatherers um, many, many, many years ago, uh, well, when I say that, I mean our great, our grandfathers, many, many years ago, great, great, great grandfathers. No matter where they lived in this, in the world, there was a predator, a lion, a tiger, a bear, or a jackal, or other animals that would eat you. Over the years, the humans have been able to get rid of all those fearful animals in zoos or in private parks, or we know where they are. So every night you can sleep safely. Imagine, you know, when you if you're in an area where there's lions and tigers and you're living in a cave. Every second of every minute that you think you you would be aware that something was could bite you. And so the last things on earth are sort of the the sharks. Man hasn't got sharks under control. Hasn't got them in, you know, well, it's got them in aquarium, but not all of them. And when you go down to the beach, you can only see underwater such a short distance that you don't know what's out there. Mm. And so it gives you this, this incredible fear of being eaten alive. People still have this same phobia with, with spiders and snakes, but sharks seems to be uh, a real, real bad one. Well, I would like to talk to you about how the media tends to glamorize, you know, a lot of this stuff. But first, I'm not going to let you jump right into the shark attack. We're going to start at the very beginning. So, Mr. Fox, where were you born and raised? Um, I lived in South Australia all my life. I was born here and um, I loved to swim. We lived in the country. A big market garden concrete tank where they pumped water out of the ground, filled it up and flooded their vegetables. And it was a big tank and my mother allowed me to go swimming. Anytime it was over 90 degrees, I was allowed to go swimming. And I remember one day we were building a house and living in the shed and I was raking the bedroom because we had gravel on the floor of the bedroom and I'm raking the bedroom, saying to mum, but it's, it's 90 degrees. I'm like, I want to go swimming. I want to, she said, finish that before you go there. <laughs> anyway, we used to learn to swim like water rats backwards and forwards across the, uh, the tank and hold my breath. So that when I got my first mask, I saw there were all these fish underwater. And my father was a fisherman, but he used to use worms and cockles for bait. Mm -hmm. And I found there's actually quite a lot of vegetarian fish, fish that only eat weed. And so they were easy to spear. And I became a very good spear fisherman. I uh, won the South Australian Spear Fishing Championships when I was 20. And uh, I was attacked by a great white shark exactly one year later in the middle of a spearfishing championships with 40 other guys in the water. 
Did you finish high school and go to college? I didn't do too well. My memory, I hated Latin. Latin had drove me mad. <laughs> you I just was, aged yourself by telling uh, us that they taught you Latin. Latin, Latin, <laughs> Latin. Latin is a language as dead as dead can be. First it killed the Romans and now it's killing me. That was a, a memory I have from high school. But I first of all went out and uh, become a clerk in, a, in an oil company. And I found out that absolutely wasn't for me to sitting at a desk writing out the figures of the petroleum stations of how they'd, how much fuel they'd sold. So then I built speedboats and wooden speedboats, clinker boats. And I became quite interested in that. And the funny thing was, is the owner of this boat building business in the front of his business built a swimming pool and he was making more money from the kids swimming in the pool than he was from his boat building. So I became a sort of a life saver because all these silly kids are always jumping the wrong end and need pulling out of the water and building boats at the same time. But my family were in trucking. So then I had a most strange and interesting job driving an explosives truck taking dynamite and gelignite from to the different quarries around the state. Is that as dangerous as it sounds? It can be. You've got a ton of high explosives on board and signs all over it. But the dangerous part really was is my truck, now we look back, was very, very faulty with the exhaust coming out the front only so that it didn't put sparks around anywhere else. Oh. It used to send... Uh, carbon monoxide back through the cabin, which had quite big holes where they hadn't put all the plates back when they'd repaired it. And I used to get gassed and fall asleep while I'm driving the explosives truck. And I remember waking up several times running off the road or towards a telegraph pole. I didn't realise it until several years later that that was the main cause, carbon monoxide poisoning. So it was a really dangerous period, but I survived. Jeez. <laughs> it sounds like you live a life on the edge. <laughs> well, when I look back, it's sort of a bit on the edge. But the most exciting thing for me was the sea. The sea that, that was so much bigger than the land and it was all out there ready for to be discovered and we were I was bringing home lobsters and scallops and all this fish and my family was so pleased that I would supply two or three meals of fish we were a family of five kids and uh, and of course money was never ever in excess and uh, it was so proud I was to bring home this fish I'd come home with a big stack of fish 10 o'clock Sunday night and dad would get out of bed and would put them on the table and clean them all and fillet them all and put them away and fresh fish of course is a, is a wonderful food yeah we were in a lot of clubs spear fishing clubs family clubs and outings and boys and girlfriends and they would go off to a beach and go off spear fishing and come back and maybe light a fire and and eat some of the fish because in those days there weren't even any fast food stores. So food was sort of, we never used to take much food. We used to eat fish and we'd throw the fish, you know, two or three, four pounder onto a fire with the scales and guts still in it and let it cook for a while and then scrape the, the scales off with our knives and just eat the raw white meat. And quite often in the early days when I, I didn't have my very efficient 
girlfriend and now my wife there, I'd say to myself, I must bring some salt and bread next time. Right. <laughs> we had nothing. We, we might have taken a packet of biscuits. That was it. It was really, but it was strange there eating this, this fish was so tasty. Of course, it's fresh and, and we used to spit a few black coals out now and again from the fire. <laughs> In this competition, when you started competing, what was the competition exactly? The South Australian Spearfishing Championships was Members from eight or nine different clubs used to have have a um, get together. A group used to organise the whole thing, and uh, we would go out for six hours, and we would spear two of each species of fish. That was part of the competition. That's right. And what you would do is weigh in the fish, and if you got the higher score, in other words, more species and of a higher point scores, you became the champion. Spear fishermen, and of course, in those days we were with no scuba. We used to hold our breaths and just dive. And I could dive to a hundred feet and uh, spear a fish and come up over two or three minutes holding my breath. And uh, I became really quite good at it. Um, I was telling you a little bit about no scuba in those days. When the first scuba came into one of the clubs, it was a fairly rich university club. I think their parents in those days had to pay money to go to uni and uh, their parents were all rich and he came home with the first scuba tank from Italy and uh, he managed to find where he could get compressed air to fill it up with and then he was walking out the jetty with it on his back. Now, there's no wetsuits in those days. They weren't even invented here anyway. And how, how did you go down to a hundred feet and not freeze? Well, we used to wear jumpers. I used to wear a jumper on my legs and uh, a jumper on on the top, a woolen jumper, real tight, and that used to keep us a bit warm. For my North American audience, that's what the Aussies call a sweater. A sweater, a sweater. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is I was always a bit jealous because the guys from the richer clubs could afford polo neck sweaters so that when you wore them on your your legs and bottom, they would have more wool down there to keep you warm, whereas I, <laughs> I had a V-neck jumper and it used to uh, keep a bit, be a bit coolish. Yeah. <laughs> wow, the world has come a long way. <laughs> and now Kay's knitting you a scarf. Now she, well, <laughs> well, that's another story. I've never worn a scarf in my life and somebody – it was a cold and somebody lent me one the other day and I found out scarves actually are really quite good. They keep you warm even, yeah. That's I know right. why girls wear scarves and hardly anything else now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in this competition, you're supposed to go down, spear two of each species. How many species were there? Well, there's there's probably, could be anything up to 20 or 30 species. But, uh, you know, we used to get eight or ten because they weren't in that area. There's... You know, many different species of fish in the ocean. And on a big reef on a certain area, you used to have to do your best to try and get the way in two fairly large ones. And, uh, after four hours in the, in the, after the year I won the championships, the next year I was trying to regain the title. I'd come in and I knew I needed a large, what we call a dusky morwong. It's a fish that grows up to 20 pounds or more. And uh, 
I thought I badly need one of them. And I sort of looked out to see and I saw that there were lots of different divers, but they were all in fairly close. And I thought, well, they haven't disturbed the areas out deep. And being able to dive fairly deep, I decided to go out wide offshore. And I dived down, taking a deep breath, and headed to the bottom. And as I got down, it was at least 60 feet deep. I was swimming along the bottom, and I saw the fish I needed. And um, I was just gliding in towards it. It had its head, actually, in a laying on the bottom with its head into a weed clump of uh, kelp. And as I got closer, I was just about to pull the trigger with my finger just caressing the trigger, and a huge thump and crash hit me in the chest like it was a train. And then it hurled me through the water, knocking the gun out of my hand, the mask off my face, and I just went faster than I'd ever swam before in this giant shark's mouth. First of all, I thought I'd been hit by a submarine because it was just a monstrous thing, and then I realised that wouldn't be a submarine where we are. It had to be a giant shark. Now, we talked about it with several of our friends before, and its eyes seem to be the most vulnerable part of the shark. So I gouged around its head, trying to get my fingers in its eyes, and it must have worked somehow because it sort of let me go, and I fell out of its mouth, and before it could bite me again, I thrust my right arm out and thrust it towards the shark, but my hand disappeared in in through its sharp teeth. And quickly, before it could bite my hand off, I dragged my hand out, ripping them over the teeth again. Then I grabbed it in a bear hug around the back of its body, holding on with my hands and legs, back from its jaws, knowing it couldn't bite me like that. Then I realised I'm holding my breath, I'm 60 feet underwater, and I've got to get air or I'm going to drown. Has anybody seen you go out that far? Nobody knew really where I was. Um, I'd come up now and again and there was there was really, I didn't even know it at the time, there was one small aluminium boat with two guys in it just putting around, having a look at odd people and what they were doing. First time there'd been a boat in, a, in the middle of a spearfishing championships ever that I can remember. But anyway, I was underwater holding my breath and th- I got hurled through the water I managed to, when I grabbed the shark, I I knew it couldn't bite me, but I didn't know where to go from there. And so I had to let go and go up for air. So I went up for air, took a big breath, and I looked down through this blood red water. I've still got this picture and this great big head coming towards me with big white sharp, big white teeth. And I thought, what can I do? I've got nothing to protect myself with. And I kicked as hard as I could at that head that was coming towards me. And underwater, everything's 20% further away. You can see it. And also, I didn't have my mask on because that had been knocked off. But I remember my fins just touching it instead of giving it a thump that I wanted to do to, to show it that I'll get away. But a miracle happened. The shark turned and swallowed the fish float, a plastic buoy, with two fish on it and swallowed it whole and then it turned and dived and it dragged me down with it because I'm the buoy is connected to my to my lead belt with ski rope. So now I'm being dragged down, 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 spinning behind the shark 
And with my left hand, because my right hand's mangled to pieces, I'm trying to find the catch to get rid of the belt, to get rid of my from the shark. And I ran my fingers over the lead weights and I just couldn't find the belt that must have swung around and was on the side. And I knew that this left arm, and I didn't have any more air left, the left arm was so badly damaged as well that I couldn't do it. And I was just about to gasp water and drown when the line snapped. Apparently the shark had bitten three quarters of the way through the line when it bit me on the chest and it was enough to, pulling me through the water to snap the line. Now that gave me a jolt of adrenaline and I sort of held on long enough to float like a leaf floats from a, down from a tree. I floated that way because I didn't know which way was up. But I was weighted such that I would slowly go to the surface and I managed to find out which way was up and head up to the surface. I got to the surface, took one breath of air and remember my lung has totally got damaged and all my chests had it and I managed to take one breath and yell out, shark, shark. And the guys had actually in the boat had seen in this blood red water and nobody in it, and I came up in the middle of it, and they were coming over to find out what it was. And so before the shark could come back again, they managed to roll me into the boat and race to shore. And, uh, of course, there's another great big long story where I was uh, taken to hospital. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is one of the most incredible survival stories, in my opinion, of all time. Because how many people have you ever heard of who have been bit at their core and survived that. I mean, your organs were, were coming out. Yeah, that's another story. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> they took me to shore in the boat. I've got my, this time I've got a wetsuit on. Okay. It's a year or so later from when we had no wetsuit. So I had a, a wetsuit, a pair of rubber pants and a top. They rolled me into the boat and I'm, it's holding me all together. My feet were for some reason killing me and I managed to indicate to take my flippers off and they raced towards the shore. They drove the boat up onto the reef, picking up one guy on the way. He ran across. The first person he spoke to was an off-duty policeman who knew where that, that one of the shacks, three shacks on the beach, one of them had the phone connected because there were no mobiles and the people were there that day. So there's another miracle, really. So they rang up to get the ambulance to come out. In the meantime, the president of the association didn't want to carry all of his equipment down this big cliff at Aldinga because he had three kids and their food and all of the weigh-in gear and stuff. And for the first time in 13 years, they drove a car about 8 to 10 miles along the beach because it was normally too rocky and had a car for the first time in 13 years in that area. So when they brought this the boat up to the beach, the boat's seats folded into a bit of a almost a stretcher and they rolled me out and loops of intestine hung out from the sides of me. I have a friend who stuffed them back in with his fingers and they quickly turned me up the other way, put me in the back of this ute, which ground out on all the reefs and rocks. So they had 20 guys lifting the car up and over the rocks and stuff. And they took off towards Adelaide. And uh, I remember how hard it was in the car because the car is doing 80 mile an hour, swaying backwards and forwards over rough roads. And it was 
grinding all my ribs together and different stuff there. Then I heard them say, here's the ambulance, here's the ambulance, quick, stop it. So they wave a towel. They waved a towel out the window and uh, I uh, they pulled up to a stop and then I was transferred into the ambulance. And in the ambulance they raced off. It was run by two lady, two lady drivers. And uh, in those days, in the 1960s, women didn't, really drive much and had a bad name for driving but one of them ladies was called fearless fanny and i met the other one 10 years later she was the butcher's wife in port lincoln so it was a strange interesting that they drove flat out all the way in but they picked up two policemen on motorbikes with their sirens going and then they ended up with every stoplight on the way into the adelaide hospital was manned by police and they waved me through and the, the the lady said they slowed down to 50 mile an hour on one corner to get me there. And the doctor, when he was examining me afterwards, he said, if another two or three minutes and you would have been gone. So it was a strange, wonderful way. Now, another funny thing happened too. 40 years after I was attacked, I was in our shark museum down at Glenelg and a guy walks up to me and he said, are you Rodney Fox? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you don't know me, but I was the orderly who opened the door when the ambulance came into the hospital. Do you remember what you said? And I thought, oh, I don't remember. I remember getting there, but I don't remember talking because I thought I was probably semi-conscious. And he said, well, you said, thank God that's over. The ride was worse than the shark attack. <laughs> <laughs> so they wheeled me into the operating table. And, of course, they had to cut my wetsuit and my bathers off me and I'm laying there on the operating table. And uh, I'd been brought up as a Methodist all my life and my wife is a Catholic and uh, I'd actually got married in a Catholic church. And one of the lads who was in the ambulance and come right through knew that that. And he said, I heard him say, I think you should call a priest. He's a Catholic. And I sat up totally naked while they're giving me blood plaster, tried to sit up, and I said, I'm a Protestant. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't really keen to have anybody say the last rites of me. I wasn't going anywhere. (laughs) Anyway, that really took a lot of energy from me, so I I blacked out after that. And uh, another strange thing happened. In the middle of the operation, I woke up. I'm laying on the operating table and I can see this big, what looks like a light overhead, but it's almost like I'm laying inside of a coffin with the lid off. It's black on the sides. And I thought, what can I do for myself? I was still ready to fight. And then I thought, I'm in hospital. The doctors are here. um, That's really probably the best that can happen. And then I realised I'm not breathing. They'd given me injections to stop my breathing. They'd put a tube in my good lung. They were pumping oxygen into my lung. My chest was risen fairly high and I had oxygen coming out my nose and mouth. So I'm being oxygenated but I'm not breathing. And I'm laying there and there's a guy working on my left hand. I remember that was out here and they're working on it. And then as I'm laying there, I'm sort of dazed. My chest went slowly down 
down, down. And the box of light got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then all hell broke loose. Can't you run an effing theatre? What's the matter? They'd run out of oxygen. In those days, they had two cylinders on a trolley inside the hospital in the operating table. And one of the cylinders had run out of air and they hadn't noticed it and they had to quickly transfer it over. But as the the box of light is lying down there, I'm getting a little bit fear. Mentally, I'm a bit, bit fearful because I know this box of light is probably my life. And then when they turned the oxygen on, my chest rose up into the air, but the box of light didn't get bigger. And, it did, and then I passed away and I, did, I woke up on the recovery, in the recovery ward. But it, um, it was quite strange that there was such swearing and carrying on and with me there. Anyway, um, I woke up in the recovery ward and I'm, I'm panting <laughs> because my lung, of course, has been, has been repaired. And I, I'm sort of, I'm aware that on the side, one side is white and on the back is white and there's something crinkly white here. Of course, it was the walls and the curtains. They ought to put something up in a, you know, hey, you made it or it's Thursday the 8th or uh, good morning. You're still, a, thank goodness it was white because if it was black or something, I wouldn't have known whether I was halfway house or uh, where I'd actually gone. So they should do that. But uh, now, that's not the only thing. And I'm you're still married at that point, right? Four months, yes. Now, my wife at the same time had tried to come in and see me for the next two days. She ended up in hospital losing a child that she, she was pregnant and, and, and she was in another hospital. Was it the stress that did it, Rodney? Um, she was starting to lose it just before. That's why she wasn't at the spearfishing championships that day. Yes. Anyway, I, I'm just laying very, very sick and dazed, panting away, and I can't really see. It's everything's a bit blurred, and, the vo- and, a, and a shadow comes over the top of me and is looking, and I open my eyes, and I'm trying to focus on, you know, whether it's Kay or whether it's my mother or whether it's a doctor or a nurse, and I'm trying to. And it's actually a one-legged dive shop owner who'd come in to have a gawk to see what I looked like in the hospital. He knew somebody and he managed to get in to have a look. And I don't know what he expected to see. I had the sheet pulled up to my chin and my hand was totally wrapped in white bandages. Anyway, I sort of recognised who it was and I said, oh, hello, Dave. I can't entertain you. I don't feel too good. And then I sort of doing went back into unconsciousness. I wasn't supposed to wake up for two or three hours, you see. Now, he thought he must have killed me, so, (laughs) or given me a shock. Anyway, he hurried up with his wooden leg out through the door and uh, didn't tell anybody that he was there for months and months because uh, until I fully recovered. And uh, Had he lost his leg because of a shark? Well, he tells everybody. He was actually sitting on a train on a flat top trolley and he's got knocked off on something else. But he, he often, as a dive shop owner, he, he made up stories about sharks and things as well. Now, Rodney, you had 462 stitches. Yeah, quite a lot in my chest and another 92 on my hand. And with four tendons in my hand were gone. Only one was left working. The lung had 20. 29 stitches in it. When they cut my wetsuit off, they examined me and found that the main artery from the heart to the stomach 
was left exposed, one neck and it's gone. The spleen was just the skin over it. It was just, I was left to do something on earth. I look at the pictures now and I think about what, what, what have I been left here for? Nobody's pointed me in the direction of being a, a something or other. And I look back now over, you know, it's been ooh, a long time, 60, nearly 50, nearly 60 years since my shark attack. And, uh, and I think all I've really done is to try talk about sharks and try and get people to understand them better. The fear that was generated by my shark attack, I noticed with all of the people that visited me. The newspapers highlighted it. You brought that up earlier about the media making huge um, inroads into perpetuating the myth. And they only do it because people have this built inside, this, this fear, this fear of being eaten alive. Or, you know, as I said, we've got all the other animals in bars and so we don't have to worry about them. Were shark attacks common back then? There was two or three, but... Nobody knew anything about them. Nobody had filmed great whites ever underwater. They, there was so little known about the underwater world. And uh, that's why it was so exciting. You never know if you're going to run into a Spanish galleon with gold. And there was real treasure down there in the shape of lobsters and scallop beds and fish home. It was all really uh, exciting. And, and to go over the next reef and find out what was there is it was was really exploring in the in the earliest best bits. Yeah, it still is exciting. Diving is a wonderful, wonderful sport. Now that shark in particular, did they try to search it out? Did they try to kill it? What they did was to put a few drums out, but a big storm came in and blew some away, and one was found hundred hundred miles away or so, but. They didn't catch it and they wouldn't have known whether that was the shark because I didn't actually have any of myself inside of it except maybe the float that might have got caught up in its mouth or something. How big do they figure it was? Well, they took my wetsuit into the museum and said it's 11 or 12 foot great white, which is really only a teenager. (laughs) In your world, (laughs) it sounds huge to me. It's a big, fairly big shark. But where I changed my life, they allowed in the first few days of recovery 30 and 40 visitors at a time to crowd around my bed and visit. I had chocolates and flowers and cards from everybody. And the reason they, instead of letting two in, which they normally say only two can visit a, a patient at a time, is they wanted to show that I had all these things to live for, all these friends and exciting times, and they they didn't know that much about shock. Shock can be shock from the the actually actions, what happened from being attacked and in the mouth of a shark, or from loss of blood too. And I'd lost nearly all my blood in the whole uh, episode, which they'd give me somebody else's, which is I'm very thankful for. <laughs> But the people didn't talk about sharks. They wouldn't. There was sort of a, a loud no, noise of nothing there where they totally kept off the subject because they didn't want to upset me in any way. But reading the papers and 
feeling what people said, I was, I knew right then that was the turning point that I didn't think sharks were as bad as they did. You know, admittedly, they do their job. They're in the ocean. You've got to work out how to do something about it. So were these people that you knew? Mainly all my friends and uh, relations and people from the clubs. Yeah. I had letters from lots and lots of people wishing me well and hoping. Shark victim, Adelaide, it was like I was a real celebrity. These letters would come to me from all over the place, yeah. Now, from what I have read in your book anyway, this set you off on a bit of a mission. I mean, it set you off on a few missions. One of the things that I had read about was these, uh, the heads that you put on your spear guns. Explosive heads, yes. Mm, can yes, you tell me yes. about that? Well, after my shark attack, I wanted to get back in the water. And one of the guys who had sent me a letter was Alf Dean, the world record holder for game fishermen for white sharks. He had caught six or seven great white sharks over one tonne in weight, and he was held line records. And he wrote me a letter in hospital, which I still have, and it says, basically, if you had seen what I'd seen, you would never, you would hang up your gear and never go back in the water again. I think it was a 10 to 12 foot great white shark, and uh, these are ferocious little buggers, and... uh, that um, you, know, you were lucky to get away with your life. Now, here was a, a world record holder, a, a businessman, somebody that I should respect, and I met up with him afterwards and we talked about it and I thought to myself, well, maybe we should, I'd like to go and have a look at these sharks to make up my own mind whether I should go back in the water because most people didn't expect me to go back as a diver, and assumed I wouldn't. And there was a saying around in those days, the best shark's a dead shark. And the fear and hatred, nobody knew what to do with them. They were, yeah, it was just one of those things that it was like cancer or hell or something like that. It was up there, but you didn't know what to do with it, you know. So four months after my shark attack, my wife and I were taking my little niece through the Adelaide Zoo and we were standing in front of the lion's cage and in the cage this big lion was behind bars but in front of the cage was a moat of water and I'm trying to work out why they put a moat of water around the cage and it was basically to stop this silly humans from sticking their arms in the cage and getting bitten by the man-eater. Now, the water and the cage and the man-eater made me think, why can't I build a cage and reverse it and I'll get in the cage and lower it over the side with the sharks and I can have a look at these sharks and see whether they are crazy man-eaters. And so I went home and I designed up a two-man cage and I had uh, a world mesh and I uh, had it built and uh, I asked Alf Dean if I can go out with him on one of his trips and we can make a film and, and, and look at these great white sharks and see whether or not they are as crazy as what people say. Because shark cages didn't exist then? No, 
No, I invented the first great white cages for great white sharks, yeah. Now, the funny thing was I organised this expedition when I was like 22 and never done anything like it, but I managed to get like a, a boat who wanted to try his brand new tuna boat out and he would do it for very little money. So I sold the story to a magazine to pay for the boat. Ampol provided thousands of litres of fuel. We're going on a shark safari, you see, and it was going to be promoted. And uh, I invited my a friend of mine from Victoria who I become, who'd lost his leg to a shark, and another friend of ours who had his leg bitten but not badly. So we all wanted to look at great white sharks. And it was so funny, we got donations of like 24 chickens and uh, and some exotic foods from uh, five-star groceries and uh, and this and that, and we got it all together and we went out on this white shark and we had to send back daily reports for the radio and newspapers. And uh, I asked Ron Taylor, an underwater cameraman, to to help me. We were going to make a film of it and film the sharks. And he was the first starting of... of underwater photography and so we actually on that trip made the first film of great white sharks underwater they'd never been filmed underwater before that film went around the world and um, we got I got several other people calling on me and I ended up in the mean to next few years leaving my job which was a life insurance salesman at the time which is quite funny ironic <laughs> And I went out, I found the first abalone beds that with my three, two mates. Three of us found the first abalone beds off of Munta. And then we started making more money weekends than we did during the week because abalone was quite uh, lucrative. And I become a full-time abalone diver, of course, in the sea without having much experience with sharks. I'd say to myself, if I felt a bit sharky, that sharks don't like abalone. They normally don't eat humans because there's so few attacks. And in clear water, if they can see you, they, without blood in the water like spearing fish, they'll probably be okay. Probably be okay. <laughs> and, uh, I used to have to sort of repeat that to myself at odd times when I was feeling a bit, a bit yucky about sharks and stuff. And I made my living as a diver. Yeah. So you needed protection? Where did the bullet heads come from? Okay, we wanted to talk about the <laughs> explosive power heads. Now, at that, almost at that same time, the explosive power head was developed. And what it was, was the sort of the barrel of a gun screwed to the head of a spear gun. Inside the barrel was a, a bullet. And you fired the bullet, the fired the spear. And when the spear hit the shark or any object, anything at all, like a tree or a, or anything, it would push a pin into the back of the bullet, setting it off. The lead would go in, making a hole, but all the gases would also go in to the shark, making quite a, a mess. So they became, they were quite good. And we carried them around. Then I made a film with again with Ron Taylor, where we showed that man can protect himself in the water. It 
sharks aren't as bad as we think they are. And we went off and we shot some sharks on film underwater, diving down and coming straight to I was pretty excited. My heart beat pretty fast during that because there was unknown. There was all totally unknown in those days how bad, whether they were or weren't. But we found out that we couldn't find any, hardly any sharks. It was really, really hard. And when you looked at the statistics and you talked to the people who'd been bitten by sharks, you found out that they didn't actually see the shark coming. So it didn't matter how big a gun you had, you still couldn't do anything about it. Because when you're wearing a mask, you block off a huge amount of the area that you can see through and they can come. And they're really well-known sharks to sneak up on their... They've learnt for years and they come out of the sun and stuff like that to sneak up on their prey. Yeah, I noticed... I did a shark dive through your company and I noticed that when I looked straight at the sharks, they tended to just kind of swim and you could tell that they were looking at me, but they pretended like they weren't. And as soon as I would turn around... Their behavior changed. Yeah, yeah, right. Is, is right. that pretty standard? Yeah, well, the same as with fish. When I used to spear fish on the bottom, you didn't go straight to them. You went, you know, a few couple of meters or a foot or two in front of them, and you didn't look at them. And then, but out of the peripheral vision of your eyes, they can tell whether you're looking, and and you can too. You can tell whether a boy's looking at you or somebody, and whether he's interested. Because it's direct, isn't it? It's really eyesight's direct. But if he's just looking a foot or two to the left or right, you can tell that. Now, yeah. in, in your book, you've got one photograph in particular, and there are five dead sharks on the stern of the boat. Mm-hmm. And you say in the caption that that was the moment that you changed your mind and started thinking shark conservation. Well, when you started to find look for sharks and you find there aren't many, it's really quite hard to... Uh, to think, well, if we kill all the sharks, and the more I read and the more I learned about it, the more I sort of found out that they don't really kill many people. The newspaper items create a big havoc out of it. I mean, so many more people drown in our River Murray here or on push bikes, for instance. They don't ban push bikes. and Or rock fishing <laughs> is super dangerous. Oh, that's, they get washed off and killed all the time. But if a shark attacks somebody... It's headlines. And not only that, all the people feel so bad. If the same children got killed in a car accident, it wouldn't make the paper and it would be over in a week and that it's acceptable. But it seems like it's not acceptable to be eaten by a shark, which I agree it's not really acceptable, but it does happen now and again. So you were having a hard time finding them and that's when it kind of set it off to Well, you? not so much as I found out that sharks really aren't interested in humans. Sharks like to eat their, the food that they are used to and they've been brought up. If they make mistakes and they think now and again in dirty water we're a sea lion. But, of course, the bull shark is a bit different. Now, the bull shark is the one that's up the east coast of America that causes most of the attacks. It's on the east coast of Australia here too. It swims up rivers, which no other sharks really do, and it hangs around in dirty water. Even small rivers. Some of the small rivers I bass fish in, there are bull sharks in them. Bull sharks, yeah. And, of course, they will bite. They've learnt to bite without seeing. They bite at anything, hoping it's a meal. And so you can get bitten by mistake. They don't know you're a human. But 
when you think of great white sharks and tiger sharks and uh, bull sharks and stuff around, no, how we we are for, amazed. It amazes me how humans think they shouldn't bite us. <laughs> We're very <laughs> but, entitled. <laughs> we, well, why are we so entitled not to be bitten? We're an animal in the water. We're just so lucky that they we look funny and. And when after one bite, we're really bony and they spit us out quite often. And often we've got friends that will quickly drag us out and we can be repaired fairly quickly. But I mean, it's, it's amazing to think that humans have got this right that we can go in the water anywhere we like and we shouldn't be bitten by a shark. It's, it's so true. strange. <laughs> it really is strange and, and they, and quite undignified, you know. We'll only go in the shallows, but they, do they come into the shallows? And I say to them, is it salt water? And they, I say, yes. Well, I said, they can be there. Yeah, they can be. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in your timeline, you then get contacted by a movie that's being made called Jaws. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> Blue Water White Death and uh, a couple of others. People contacted me because I had the cages and the knowledge of how to catch sharks then and, and how to photograph great white sharks. And, of course, the Jaws movie. Now, the Jaws movie was really... Nobody. It was it was described as a um, a shark movie and uh, an exciting shark movie, and nobody knew, and I didn't know it was going to frighten everybody out of the water. That it was going to be such an incredible blockbuster movie. It was amazing. Now they were having real troubles in with their big electronic uh, sharks underwater. Spielberg was having tearing his hair out trying to get them to work. They had two or three of these giant monsters on rails under the water that would, one that would come up forward and open its mouth and stuff. So that's why he started to use just the dum 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 the music. But we didn't know that over here was all they would. They just wanted to get some live shark footage. So they sent over here a, uh, a midget, a small man, a small cage. And everything was sort of half size, half size man, half size cage, half size mask, half size knife, everything, it, scuba tank. And they wanted him to be photographed in the water in a half size cage to make the sharks look twice as big, to make a 12 foot shark look like 25 or 25 foot long. And so we had a lot of funny trouble with this little guy there, but Carl. Carl, it, Rizzo, Carl Rizzo, yes. <laughs> we, uh, one of the funny things was they wanted 
to uh, get a photograph of the simps circling the cage. Now, Carl actually told everybody that he'd been a diver in the film Mame, which I looked at the film Mame and there's no diving in it whatsoever, and that he was in a hard hat lowered into a tank, at, which I have no idea what it was about, but we found out he couldn't dive. And on the first day of this big film production arriving in Port Lincoln, I threw a dinner party for them and we showed some of the footage of our previous photographs showing how dangerous and serious we had to be on the wall. And he came up to me and he said to me, um, when they pump air into me, do I have to suck it in or does it just get blown in? So I knew he had no idea. So we took him down to the local jetty next day, dressed up in his little suit and uh, in his wetsuit when he had a uh, half-size wetsuit and all the gear on, dressed him up. And we were just walking out the jetty where all the kids are diving off and bombs and carrying on and it's great fun and we was going to go down the steps. And he said, I can't do it, I can't do it. So we were all right. Well, we took him back to shore and sat him on his rock up to his knees in water and put him all the gear on him, put his head between his knees and he could breathe in the water. And I said, see, that's not that hard to do, to dive. You can just keep breathing and you're going to be in the cage and you're only going to be just close to the surface. Anyway, we uh, he said he didn't want to hold things up. We took him for a quick swim around the surface without a lead belt on. He seemed to handle that all right. He didn't want to hold up the whole production team any longer, so we went out to sea and we, we did a lot of other things first. But then when he first got in the cage, I had to have a half-size boat, so I used a 20-foot, my boat, abalone boat. From underwater, looking up at the hull, it could be the orca in the in the film, and you see it's just a black film. And with the cage over the size, a half-size boat, a half-size cage, and a little man in it, a shark will look like it's the big monster Jaws shark. And so uh, we, I'm giving, there's a sh- one shark swimming round and round and round and round, so I'm saying, it's, they said it's your time. So we jumped into our boat, tied on the, bigger, the, on the big boat. The cameraman went down in my cage and was filming everything up and we got the little guy dressed and into the cage but the Hollywood guys had made the cage so heavy because they knew nothing about sharks the half-size cage was twice as heavy as my two-man full-size cage and it made my boat tip right over so it wasn't straight and level in the water because it was made of steel, what it, were you, solid round steel, where mine was sort of tubish and, and a lot, lot much lighter. But they had made it so strong it's that it would an elephant could roll on it and it wouldn't even bend. Anyway, I I was laying on the floor, quickly pushing all the drums and weights over the other side to make the boat level, and. Uh, I got a yell from the other cage, quick, pull up Carl, he's drowning, he's drowning. So I winched him up to the surface, which was it was only uh, three feet under the surface, and I opened the cage and tapped him on the head, expecting if, if he's in trouble, he'll just come pounding, he'll just come and climb out. And he didn't move. And I touched him on the head again, he didn't move. So I put both arms with my stomach over the gunwale of the boat in the water under his, and I lifted but he's so scared he's got hold of the cage and I can't lift the whole cage and him out of the water. 
So I hit him hard as I could on his right hand, and he must have thought he was bitten by the shark because he let go and pushed up, and he came straight up in the air and over and collapsed on top of me in the boat and wriggled around with his scuba tank in the, in my wet as wet, like a wet seal. And I'm saying to him, what's the matter? What's the matter? And he said, my mask, my mask, it's filling up with water. We hadn't taught him how to clear his mask and the water had run up alongside his nose. And as it was going up higher and higher in the mask, in his mask plate, he thought when it hit the top he was going to drown. But it had nothing to do with the regulator that was in his mouth anyway. So so back to the drawing boards, we had to teach him again. Now, a shark did end up getting into a cage at some point. What's the story behind that? Well, right towards the uh, the six-week ending of trying to get all sorts of different types of shots that they could or maybe include into the Jaws movie, we had three big sharks come around were circling the boat. And the one scene they needed badly was of the little guy who had never been in the water yet into the cage, the sharks circling it and maybe coming right up to it closely and harassing the cage. And so he and I jumped in back into the, my small boat which is just tied onto with by rope onto the mother ship. The cameraman went down. We dressed the little guy in his wetsuit and his half-size fins and stuff. And one of the big sharks swam around the back of my boat. And my boat was actually an outboard motor. But with the motor right up in the air, you couldn't see from underwater the prop. So it was just a dark shadow. But the shark stuck its head out and grabbed hold of the propeller of my boat and was shaking it, and the boat was actually moving. It was a fairly big shark. And I could imagine the cameraman underwater getting this scene of this big shark harassing the boat, which is exactly what they wanted. And I'm saying to him, get in the cage, get in the cage. It's ready, and I've got the door open and everything ready. No, no, I won't. I won't get in the cage. (laughs) And uh, the shark let go of the propeller, swam alongside my my boat and got its head caught in the cage in the, the four straps that held, going up to a ring that held it in the water. And it, and it couldn't get away and it was kicking and crashing and carrying on there. The cameraman underwater is getting all this smashing stuff and what actually happened is the shark, I, I, I had it on a rope and I could cut it free. So I raced over with a knife and I cut one of the safety ropes and uh, the tail came up and nearly hit me and the boat went over so far, water was coming over the stern. So I raced back over to equalise it. Then I heard all grating and groaning and creaking as the shark is so heavy and strong, it's tearing the fibreglass winch off of its pivot pins. And I raced over again and then the head came up with its teeth showing and and the weight of its head out of the water, of course, sunk the boat and more water came in. So now the boat's got a few inches of water over the bottom, in, in, the, uh, in the bottom of it, and I'm raced back again. And then all of a sudden it got its tail underwater and it ripped the whole winch over and a big hole in the side of the boat and there's rocking and crashing on. And I'm quickly, as the whole thing's gone, the cage is gone, the winch is gone, I'm looking around and I know Carl's can see Carly's up by the steering wheel and um, 
uh, as I looked down on this water, it was bright red water. And I thought, we're bleeding, I'm bleeding. And I thought, it's not me because I, I could feel that I was okay. And I looked at Carl and he seemed to be okay. But in the terror of the moment, he dragged off the copper trim tab pipes and it was hydraulic oil, hydraulic oil, red hydraulic oil was all over the flight there. So it really frightened us. But they quickly pulled us alongside the mothership in case we were sinking or in trouble. And he raced off down into his cabin saying, they're not paying me enough. <laughs> did he ever come back? <laughs> no, we never f- did get him in the water. <laughs> but the sequence of the, sh- of the shark smashing around the cage into the, the cage itself, and crashing to the bottom was all captured. And then Spielberg ended up by getting the marine biologist into the cage and shaking the cage, and then they intercut it into that sequence, and he said it changed the whole script of Jaws. (laughs) And uh, at one stage in an interview, Spielberg said that it was the photography that we had got on that uh, particular shoot that made him famous. But... uh, (laughs) But I didn't tell anybody I worked on the Jaws movie because it was my real philosophy at the time that we have to learn to look, understand the sharks, look after them and treat them better. And this, of course, Jaws movie was a, and everybody went to it and millions went to it and, uh, and, and it's still one of the famous movies of all time. Would you do it again if you knew what it was going to do? Probably not. No, I, I wouldn't want to be involved with a movie that made sharks to people more fearful. However, there's a, a must add. Working with National Geographic, with the Costo Society, with um, Discovery Channel and all those, I said to several directors over the years, we're not doing the sharks much good by showing them biting and crashing around all the time. Why don't you, we show more of the beauty of the shark as they glide and fly like aeroplanes underwater. And they all without doubt said to me, we've got to give the people what they want and try and weave our conservation message into that. Otherwise we'll never sell our films. Yeah, I guess you need the audience to be able to educate them and the audience wants drama. Drama. Which is why, listeners, you're tuning in right now because (laughs) my whole mission here is actually to talk about shark conservation. So I'd like to take it down that road if that's okay. Well, that's lovely. I'd rather talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) So you ended up starting a cage diving company. Now, was your purpose there to bring attention to just how beautiful and majestic these animals were are because I'll be honest with you I I went on one of your trips for 3 days to the Neptunes and I went in expecting it to be terrifying and having sharks get in the gap of the cage and and that the tuna was going to get ripped over the cage and the sharks are going to bite it and all of these things that didn't happen and what I experienced was a really respectful calming appreciative trip. It was much different than I expected it to be. Was that your mission? Yes. I'm so pleased that you came out feeling that way. So many people don't know what to expect and they sort of think that it's going to be a Jaws. People stand in the middle of the boat thinking the sharks are going to jump up and get them if they go (laughs) to the edge or the side, but they are amazed and without doubt on our great white shark expeditions that, um, Most people, and I would say like 98%, 
go home understanding the sharks much better and feeling that they do have a place in this world and that we've got to respect them and that uh, they're not as bad as they had thought. Yeah, that's what I took from it. Mm. And and it did help too. I was on a trip with a couple of biologists and they were they were collecting T- uh, tissue, I guess, muscles oh, t- or t- tissue, tissue samples, samples. Yes, yes. Uh, for, for research. And I learned so much about, mm. well, just what isn't known about sharks uh, and, and how long it takes to, to accumulate this data. It's really quite a difficult thing to do. The, the, the Rodney Fox shark expeditions have a foundation where we try to get a lot of uh, the understanding of sharks better to out to people. And we work in with the Flinders University and we've had quite a few PhD students do different types of studies on great whites and uh, we help them by giving them a, a platform and a place to go out and see them. But it's got to take a long time because you don't see that many and you see them for a few minutes only and you can't sort of study them easily. It's not like you know, a horse in a, in a paddock or something. It's, you've got to wait till they come. And, and if we put satellite tags and things on them, but it's Andrew, my son, Andrew, who runs our expeditions now has been doing it since for, you know, for the last 35, 40 years. And his passion is so great towards the sharks that he doesn't think of money at all. He just thinks of how we can get out there and be with the sharks. And, uh, and of course, it's the tourists that actually pay for the trips. And we try and get a, a couple of researchers or somebody on it. But not only that is I get such a reward from people coming out of the cages. And as you just said, of, try, of seeing and looking at the sharks and saying that was the most exciting thing I've ever done. Of course, they can't talk underwater. And so when they get out of the cage, they all, four or five people at once bubble and talk over each other like it was, it was champagne coming out of a bottle. And, uh, so I get pretty excited about that. Well, I think one of the things that really struck me that I didn't expect was that you learn, you, you kind of grow to, you grow fond of a particular shark. So you'll, you'll start to recognize a facial marking or on the trip I was on, there was a big female and she had a scar on her body. And we'd see her coming and I'd get all excited. I'd get kind of warm because yeah. I, I felt like I was becoming familiar with this animal. And in your book, you really struck home when you said you'd seen a shark that you guys knew. I can't remember the shark's name, but he had a, a scar on his nose. And you'd seen that same shark strung up by a fisherman. Oh, oh yeah. In the, that was in the real early days when the game fishing of, before they were protected, we managed to get them protected and, uh, so the game fishermen just couldn't go out because then we don't think there's that many great white sharks left in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they can be caught in nets and they can be caught in, uh, long lines. And so they have still got being caught. But, um, when you get to know one and you see it, they've all got different personalities. Oh uh, yeah, they did. It's amazing how when they, they're swimming around the boat. One will be a clumsy old oof that will come up and bang into the cage and have a look <laughs> at you and go away. And others very flighty and they'll come in. And others are really clever and they only come up from the bottom. And and uh, it's a bit like humans, you know. And uh, when you interview all different types of people, you can see some of them are 
really different, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even though they've got two legs, two arms and two eyes. How did you guys get them protected? <laughs> well, I can't say that I actually had a lot to do with it. There were quite a few people. A lot of the marine scientists that I spoke to knew that sharks generally were in a bad way. And because of the Jaws movie, it created such an incredible... People focused on the Jaws, on the great white shark, which was the Jaws shark. And, you know, like, for instance, I think the bull shark had killed more people or uh, attacked more people then, but nobody said, let's protect the bull shark or anything. But the great white had this phenomenal name. It's a a film star and it's incredible. But all of our films, I would be interviewed about my shark attack and how did you get out of the shark's mouth and what did you do next and things like that and why did you want to go back in the water was one of the main questions and and it was of course it was my love of the sea and the ocean and not believing that the sharks are mad crazy killers but um every film that we did and every article that was we wrote or was written about us, and there were literally hundreds and hundreds, we would want to get in there. The fact is that we didn't think there were many great white sharks and they ought to be protected. And so these stories got around the world and the movies got around the world and all the talks and lectures I gave, I said that, you know, they have a right to live and we shouldn't try and get rid of them. They have a job to do in the ocean. They eat the sick and the slow and the weak fish, dolphins, sea lions and everything, keeping our oceans clean and, and making that species evolve better and, and stronger. And so they're a necessary evil, if you want to call them that, in our oceans and we need them there. But after you get, like you said before, to know them, to know how they come in and look at the cage and swim around. And you wonder where they'd been for the last four or five months in the open ocean, running around the open ocean, basically trying to earn a living. And uh, it makes you feel a bit, you know, sorry and as if you know them and that it's great to see you again. It's uh, like an old friend that comes in. And it's it's so good that you're starting to learn more about them and how they survive. And it was wonderful to find out that sometimes they hang out together. There's three or four that will hang out together and another group of three or four and that seem to fish together. Now, we don't know whether they fish all their life or they just gather for a month or two at the Neptunes, but they're one behind each other. They'll often, if there's one there, the other two will be around. And so they sort of have clans or groups that they like to hang out with and film and fish with, you know, and they probably hunt together. Can you tell me anything about how their breeding cycle works? The great whites females have to be probably 15 feet long and up to, uh, 12, 13, 14 years old before they'll even have any babies. Then they can have anything from, you know, three to five that are born. Uh, and they think that they, the, the period that they have them in their bellies, what's that? The gestation, gestation the gestation of them is uh, probably 18 months or so. And they might only have one set every three years. So very little is really known, but 
from what we've worked out. So they don't have many babies. And the smaller the fish, the more millions of babies because they've got to feed all the other fishes. That And it's, I was just looking at a picture here where one f- shark is eating a fish and that fish is eating another fish and if that fish is eating a smaller fish. It's a crazy, wild place under the sea, but you don't see it when you go diving or snorkeling. It's it's not just a ferocious feed up where everybody's feeding on everybody else. It's a delightful world under the ocean. And I think apart from my wife and my family, my my sons and daughters, and how I think sharks and diving, diving in particular, is the best thing I've ever done. And I can recommend it to anybody. When I had asked the biologists how many sharks there were out there, I think they did give me an estimation, and I remember it being surprisingly low. Any idea how many great whites are out there? Well, there was a, it's really got no idea, but they try and estimate these, but they only thought there might be 1,300 or something along the southern coast. Um, That's breeding female, breeding sharks. It's amazing how we, meaning the, the expeditions, have such a, success and we don't run many day trips we like to do two three four five and even up to seven or eight day expeditions because you can sit out there in their country you can you're actually in at the neptune islands where we've got licenses to chum to put tuna into the water minced up tuna to make a trail and they'll come in to have a look to see if there's any food available and then they'll hang around the boats one of the calling places of all Australia that they call into, and it's mainly because there's more sea lions there on those islands than there are anywhere else along Australian coastline. It's the best restaurant in the Southern Ocean, and they make it a calling point to come in there to try and fill up before they go off and look for other types of fish and animals, yeah. Now, this is the Neptune Islands? The Neptune Islands, yeah. How many people are allowed to drop cages in there? There's only three of us with licenses to be able to put cages in, two of us that are able to use minced up chum, mm-hmm. minced up meat for it. And it's to, to basically so as we don't um, train the sharks to come in for real other reasons than their normal everyday excursions in there. Because there is a lot of criticism with cage diving. Can we address some of that? Because it's kind of the elephant in the room. People say, oh, you're teaching sharks to associate humans with there's a whole lot of negative thoughts on this can you help me address some of this or 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 is it warranted is it is it not necessarily a great practice in some places like in south africa and mexico it hasn't actually proven to be any problem at all for humans um we've we've got people continuously looking at it and monitoring it we don't put enough bait in the water or tuna, to make them think they've got to feed. As a matter of fact, some sharks don't like the association with humans and banging around the cages and they don't come back. We've tagged some and their satellite tags show they're in the area at the Neptunes, but they don't come near the boats. And so over the years, there's actually been less shark attacks on our coast since we've been doing it than there was before. So it's almost like... They could, we could actually be teaching them not to like sharks. We keep flashing them with these damn cameras and banging and crashing around and they don't get rewards for, for what they're doing. So. Could there just be fewer of them? 
The sharks? Yeah. Oh, that could be the case than there was before too. The ocean is still a, an incredibly good ca- place unknown, except when you count the numbers of fish that the fishermen are taking out and how it's getting less and less and less the catches. They're having to go further and further and further. We know that the the ocean is in a real decimated place. Humans can catch fish if they're in large enough numbers anywhere in the ocean with these huge, big, long trawl nets. They can trawl up hundreds and hundreds of tonnes. The amount of plastic that's being put out there now, all the poisons that's being washed off the off the land into the ocean is killing the seaweeds and stuff out there. We're treating it like it was a big garbage dump and you can't see it. I had the opportunity to dive in the Greek islands many years ago and it looked wonderful on the land with the beautiful white painted houses and the streets and all clean and neat and the blue ocean was just perfect. And when we went snorkeling, we couldn't believe the number of tin cans and plastic bottles and stuff that was all hidden on the ocean there. And so it's happening right around the world and and I was disappointed a couple of years back, I dived on one of the furthest reefs that you could ever get to in the Great Australian Bight. And something caught my eye, a gleam caught my eye, and I looked down there and it was like a bottle, a glass bottle on the bottom's been thrown over from a, from a boat. Yeah. Just can't escape it. No. How much can't. of that is current? Well, I guess it really doesn't matter if it's currents or otherwise. If it, if they're there, they're there. They're there. That's right. And, uh, and of course, all of the boats in the past used to throw their rubbish off at sea. Mm. And, uh, it's, it's really quite sad. And because plastic lasts so long. I have mm. two questions for you. What are your thoughts on people, particularly on social media these days, free diving and, and swimming with the sharks and, and trying to make names for themselves <laughs> as being shark swimmers? I think you always get. People who want to go further. That's why humans have dominated the world. I personally don't agree because having felt the teeth of a great white shark, even a test bite or a get out of my way is so easy for them to do and you've only got one life. Yeah. So why are you, except to make a million dollars, driving to pr- prove that t- sharks with great big teeth that eat things as big as you every day won't take a bite now and again? My next question is about the 2014, well, I guess it's not just limited to 2014. I first experienced shark culling in 2014 when Western Australia put together a cull a bunch of drum lines to kill sharks after a number of attacks. And I believe in the study I read, there has never been, or I know in this particular call, there was no, there were no great white sharks caught and that all that it was catching or killing were tiger sharks. Does that sound about right? That's what I heard as well, that um, they didn't actually catch any great whites. I think culling is I, I, if, if you, you ended up with a great white shark that regularly came back and, and bit people or was harassing, I think you would be okay to eradicate them and take them out of the water. But 
We don't see that. They don't make the come back again and again to the same place where they've eaten a human and think, oh, that was lovely, I'll come back and have another one or anything like that. So it hasn't been proven. The, ro- the rogue shark theory is totally a misnomer. What would you like to see my generation do to help these sharks? I think that the shark fin soup is one of the worst things for the sharks. Can you explain what that is to people who have never heard of it? Shark fin soup is a, is a delicacy that's served in the Asian countries, especially in China. In the last few years, there have been a lot of footage of them just throwing them back alive into the ocean with no fins. I spoke to a chap once who who said, but they grow them back again, don't they? They well, don't. It's, no, Do they? it's not no. like your fingernails or anything. They don't. They just die from, they can't move. They just die a slow, slow death over the next few weeks and so. But there is a lot of misnomers about shark fin soup. But one of them is, is that thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sharks each year are killed for their fins. The emperor, emperors of China had recipes going back 2000 years when they would have shark fin soup prepared for them. So you can imagine 2,000 years ago it would be hard to catch a, a shark and to catch its fin off and then to soak it for long enough to make this gelatinous-like soup that it was only done for special people. And as the Chinese population got more and more and more, it became a fad and a tradition that at any special occasion, whether it be a a 21st birthday or a wedding or a 40th birthday or any special occasion, they were expected to serve the best that they could afford. And so they used to, shark fin soup, caviar, abalone, all those very high-priced things. Now, because the reason why they're high-priced is the Asians have nearly eaten them all. There's hardly any left. And uh, millions and millions of sharks are killed each year just for shark fin soup. How do you fight something like that? We asked the Chinese ambassadors to uh, Australia once what you could do about it. And they said one of the first things is that um, we have a difficulty in um, identifying sharks from fish because we all eat fish. But... Sharks and fish, they don't, he said they don't identify them as being uh, two different things. So that was a hard thing. Whether it was a good answer, I don't know. But we're finding now that the young Chinese people and Asian people from different countries who love their shark fins are getting on the bandwagon. Education, pods like this where you t- people tell why and how and things happen will help. And I think the young people of today are starting to get far more educated in how to look after their oceans better. I have a silly question. Couldn't you use other parts of the shark to get a gelatinous soup? I mean, if it's this, is it the skin or is it what's inside of the fins? It's what's inside. The skin is scraped right off. It's what's inside. It's a jelly. If you soak it long enough, it's, it's actually a very glutinous. It doesn't even taste much good. It's the vegetables they put with it and the chicken sometimes that make it taste good, but it's got a glutinous 
you know, they make out of cow's hoofs, they make gelatine. Yeah. Well, this is a similar thing. It's a gelatine that holds the soup together and makes it a bit fishy and uh, it's not much good for you, they say. It's like eating toenail soup. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to do a piece on on shark fin soup. Uh, Does Australia have bans against it? Yeah, I guess they would. Um, People who catch sharks here can only have to bring the whole shark to shore. There's a few with licenses still. Oh, yeah. And they have to bring the whole shark, which means you have to use it. You just don't cut the fins off and throw it away. Hmm. So if you don't want to use the whole shark, it takes up a lot of space and it helps to save the sharks by so many people aren't doing it now. As a recreational angler, what are your thoughts on someone like me who might catch a shark, say a small bronze whaler, and want to take it home and cook it up for curries and and fish and chips? Some of the smaller species seem to be breeding in large enough numbers to take it home. When you start to lay down your thoughts, if you start diversifying to smaller sharks and smaller sharks, you ruin your argument. Even though the, the, there are some commercial fisheries now that they say are not killing off too many sharks, such as the uh, Sweet William and the uh, there's different small school sharks, they call them. And uh, they're quite good eating, but I like to think that all, all sharks need a help. We can easily wipe them out, and we are. When I was 50 years, 60 years ago, the ocean was unvirtually known. There were very few trawlers in Australia anywhere. There was only a few fishermen. And between where I live in South Australia and Perth, there's two or three thousand kilometres or of area where there would be hardly any fishermen at all. But there's not many fish in that area. There are deserts in the ocean as there are on land. Unless you have a huge fertile river running in, bringing all nutrients into the oceans, it seems like you don't have these large schools of fish. Like, for instance, tuna. Our tuna that we catch quite a lot of in our in our state here all come from the middle and breed in the middle of, of the uh, Indian Ocean. So they're a big pelagic fish that just passes through. Do you feel that way with all fish? I mean, if we shouldn't be taking sharks because we can wipe them out, do you think we should stop fishing? I love eating fish. I've been brought up on fish all my life. I find it really expensive now. And the reason why it's expensive is because they're not, we are not getting enough of it. If it was lots of it around, it'd be lots cheaper. So it just proves to me that our oceans are being decimated, and we soon we won't have enough fish to breed. So do you think we should stop eating fish? I think we should start breeding more fish. We should start growing our own fish. We should start um, producing. When, when, when our first thousands of years ago, when the hunter-gatherers, the human hunter-gatherers, started growing grain and started farming, they only did that mainly because the animals were getting so less. They had to rely on more and start to breed their own cows and horses and, and, and sheep and pigs, breed them and breed them up in large enough numbers for us to eat. There's far too hum- many humans on earth at the moment and uh, 
I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> and the and the whole you know point about making your own food or 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 breeding your own food is really dangerous as well. I don't know if you're familiar with a lot of you know the the fish farming. <laughs> you're shaking your head. You're like ah, but there's a lot of. I mean, we won't go down that road in this episode, but there's a lot of problem and debate with that as well, with disease and infestation. And then, uh, I mean, salmon fish farming's decimating populations. Yeah, one of the problems with food that is grown, whether it be chickens or salmon, is the fish, the food that they feed it is the cheapest single thing that they can feed it. And it can't be getting the minerals and the chemicals and the the vitamins that it needs that can pass on to us. So these fish that are farmed are only as good as the food that you give it and they're not given good enough food. There's a lot to be said on that. We'll save that for another day, Mr. Fox. Ronnie, I've taken up a big chunk of your day so far. What is next for you? Not today, but in general. What's next for you? I have been working the last two years on a book, Ooh, another book. Do tell. It's a shark book where I am the shark and I'm having living my life in the ocean. And basically over my, you know, 60 years of diving, I've seen so many wonderful areas, reefs, types of fish, and as a, a, a diver and a shark filmer, I've seen what all these sharks do at different times. I'm trying to bring this to the public and get them to understand how a shark lives its life. And uh, it's fiction and there's a couple of girl sharks in it and stuff. But uh, Is it for an adult audience? It, it's basically it'll be from all audiences, a bit like Harry Potter. But I'm enjoying it so much because I'm reliving so many of my filming adventures around Australia. I have to relive them to so that I can try and put them down in writing. Do you ever have PTSD from your attack? What is PTSD? <laughs> <laughs> post-traumatic oh, stress yes. disorder. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, post-traumatic stress. Um, I was very fortunate not to have nightmares. I could actually start on a nightmare going into what would be a nightmare and stop it. And one of the really funny things that I don't know if I should say on this podcast, but I will, was that in the early days, I used to have to try and wake up. I was able to wake myself up and think of other things. And of course, to get back to sleep and calm yourself, they say count sheep. So I used to count sheep and that didn't work. And then I thought, think of beautiful things, think of flowers and stuff like that. So I would think of fields of flowers, but that didn't seem to get rid of the, the fear that was shaking me. And then I, and I thought, food, think of food. And so I would think about beautiful steaks and uh, maybe a glass of wine or something. And, and that was a help, but still, but girls' boobs was yeah. actually the most <laughs> <laughs> including my wife of four months was the most exciting thing I could think of, and that helped a lot. <laughs> well, who doesn't think of boobs when they go to bed at night, really? <laughs> well, Rodney, I cannot thank you enough. It's been an – actually, you've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit with me. Yes, well, I don't think that – what I would like to say is that 
these days with social media and with um, the new computers and stuff, I've been left behind. I'm actually a uh, not very good at any of those things. So where the sharks are at the moment, you'd be better do a, a podcast with my son Andrew who's spent all of his lives there now and has got all the up-to-date news on their statistics and the way they run. But um, I'm afraid the world is going too fast for me now and uh, I hope that my last 60 years of talks have actually helped people to understand the sharks better. Well, you, I'm going to say that you have. And I mean, just even personally, reading your book, going on that excursion, you definitely changed my outlook. Mm. And I will absolutely sit down with Andrew and look forward to it. Yes. Okay. Thank you for, for having me. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 